The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Go ahead. Are you familiar with a planet called Agaron? They're close allies with the Vulcans, right? Not always. Agaron was a very corrupt world. When their leaders were first trying to forge an alliance with Vulcan, they asked for our assistance. That was nearly 30 years ago. Hundreds of our agents were surgically altered and sent to infiltrate the most criminal factions of Agaron society. Eventually, they were instrumental in the overthrow of those factions. After the alliance was formalized, the Vulcan agents were recalled. They all returned voluntarily, all but 19. I guess even Vulcans can fall prey to temptation. The Ministry of Security sent a team of newly trained operatives to retrieve them. I was only able to apprehend five of the six fugitives assigned to me. So tomorrow, you get to pick up number six. Why couldn't someone else do it? Why you? The Ministry considers it a matter of honor. How very Vulcan. So, why have you decided to tell me all this? I'd like you to come with me. What? The man I'm being sent to apprehend is extremely dangerous. It would be wise for me to have assistance. You said there's a Vulcan ship coming. I'm sure they can provide all the assistance you'll need. I'd prefer it if you'd come with me, Captain. Why? I need to be with someone I can trust. Welcome, everyone. It's Thursday, November 5th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. You trust me, Robert? Well, yeah, I trust you to the extent that I know you. Wow, I, you know, that's amazing. There is a condition there, and yet there isn't a condition there. Uh, because I know, I had to ask you that question, especially given our opener there. Uh, it's very funny, I would have thought you would have said, uh, trust me to do what? <laughs> <laughs> or something along those lines, you know? Yeah. But you said you knew me. Oh, to the extent that I know you. Yes. You know, it's really funny because it's just like, you know, I always obey the law of identity when it comes to issues of trust. And when people ask me about that, I'll, you know, like, would I trust, trust a crocodile or an alligator? Uh, yeah, I would trust them to behave like crocodiles and alligators. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? So I just thought that would be an interesting way of, of uh, introducing your topic that you'll be talking about in the second half of our show today. Which is, of course, trust. Yes, and, and any particular angle on it? Just a broad look? Oh, yeah. No, uh, what got me going was Ted Cruz and his recent uh, appearance at the debate with CNBC. That's of course, was a um, quite a pivotal moment about trust. Yeah. So um, I thought I'd write a little piece about that and we'd talk about that in the next half, of our, next half hour. Well, I trust that's going to be a very interesting half hour. Hey, very glad to have dog. you join us to, on our show today as uh, Robert and I discuss trust issues, not necessarily those we might have with each other. <laughs> but uh, welcome to those of you joining us for the first time on WBCQ 5.110 MHz from Monticello, Maine. 
You're listening to Just Right, a spoken word radio show that's been around for some eight years or so as such. And if you're wondering why we're suddenly appearing on WBCQ, we have one man to thank for that. And that's a man named Paul Lambert. So thank you to Paul Lambert. Who thank is you, Paul. Yes, who is solely responsible for bringing our show to WBCQ. Now, I understand that regular listeners to WBCQ may know Paul from his own past VSI broadcasts on the station. And while those of you who are familiar to having heard past podcasts of Just Right either online or broadcasts of the show on CHRW 94.9 FM in London, Ontario, might remember Paul as having been both a guest on the show and our acting Euro correspondent from Sweden from time to time. Made for some interesting conversations there, didn't he? Indeed, yes, especially about the uh, Middle East. Oh, yes. But Paul no, no, Paul no longer lives in uh, Sweden, as we found out just this week, and uh, which he described kind of as a basket case now, Robert. But uh, he now resides in Berlin, Germany, where he still tunes in to Just Right each week. Thank you again, Paul. And now that you're in Germany, I trust that the TV tax police won't be looking into the windows of your home to see if you have a TV set. Although I could be wrong. <laughs> Remember he told us that story? <laughs> oh, the TV license, yeah, over in Europe is amazing. In Sweden, yes. Now, for those of you hearing our show for the first time, no matter where you happen to be, you're in for a real treat if you, can, if you find today's show enjoyable, informative, entertaining, or you know, you know, just plain like it. Because you can also check out our incredible online archive of all our past weekly shows and broadcasts from our first one way back in 2007 to our current shows today. And if you don't find today's show to your liking... Well, I'm betting that if you check our archive, you still find something there that I think you will like. And, you know, that you will like, and you'll like to listen to, not necessarily agree with all the time. And I guess we should say, Robert, too, we don't say it too often, you know, it's not our mission to convince anyone of anything, of, you know, even though we consider it a bonus when that happens. In fact, it could even be regarded as a news event from time to time. <laughs> but if we have a single mission at all, it is to broaden the discussion about freedom, about capitalism, about democracy, so that those of you who do wish to see these things preserved and protected can share our own learning experience in terms of what we've learned you should do and not do in the advocacy of those values. On the philosophical level, we see the four pillars of freedom as being reality, reason, self, and consent. And uh, on the political level, I guess the three pillars of freedom we would regard highest are the rights to life, liberty, and property. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> Pretty basic stuff. We're not new-fashioned. We're not old-fashioned. In fact, we're not fashionable at all. We're just right, eh, Robert? <laughs> well, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so at least most of the time. Yeah, well, we could be wrong, but that's part of the game, is not to be, if we, we, we say what we want, on, or we say what we believe on, on the basis of the facts we have at hand. So consider us your trustees of the right, not the right wing, just the right, as in true, correct, verifiable <laughs> against the tests of reality and reason. So if you like what you hear on this show, let us know. If you don't like what you hear on the show, well, let us know that too. Because you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Writes on iTunes, 
Hear us on WBCQ 5.110 MHz Monticello, Maine. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can also make a donation to help bring Just Right to even more listeners and enjoy a whole smorgasbord of freedom-oriented material as a bonus. A lot of stuff there that isn't just the show. Now, as, uh, now Robert, you, you break in here if you think anything I'm saying here is not correct. But uh, just to restate it, you know, as Canadians ourselves, uh, Robert and I uh, nevertheless see both Canadian and American, uh, American countries, the, the two countries, as being part of the same culture, irrespective of their differing political systems. I don't intend to get into any big discussions about whether the U.S. Republic is, be- is a better form of government or whether Canada's constitutional, constitutional monarchy is, because we've done this in the past and pretty much concluded that either form of government is fully capable of protecting freedom or of destroying freedom, the variable be, you know, being the people who are elected to govern and those who vote for them. Both Canada and the United States have essentially the same economic and political problems and share the same philosophical challenges and solutions if those problems are to be lessened or eliminated. We advocate an ideal, not some notion of perfection, and I would say that the history of humanity has at its essential always been about a struggle between some unknown ideal called freedom and the various forms of tyranny that the world has experienced that have only served to frustrate the attainment of that ideal. The issues that we all face today in 2015 and tomorrow, for any of you who might be listening or hearing the show like in 2115, can always think on that, (laughs) they'll always be the same. I'm convinced of that, Robert. You know, race, culture, religion, and state are considerations that will never disappear, despite all the protestations to the contrary. And I think a mere cursory glance at any day's newspaper of any community in North America um, at, you know, current world events unfolding before our eyes, along with a glance at the issues faced in history, uh, going all the way back to the Roman Empire and beyond, that should make that abundantly clear. You know, Bob, it always comes down to one thing, one issue. Mm -hmm. The individual versus the collective. All of the things you mentioned, race, religion, creed, all of that, collectivism. It all comes down to one issue. It's always the individual versus the collective. And it's funny that on the collective side of that equation, there are so many variables. It's like there's a whole collective of collectives. But on individualism, it's like the one way, the true way, the only way you can achieve this. There's you know, a very narrow way that we, can, we actually understand that works in achieving that wonderful condition that we call freedom. So that's about the short and the long of it, if I may borrow and mutilate a phrase. So anything else you'd care to add, Robert? No, uh, of course, I'm in perfect agreement with you. Um, <laughs> well, there's absolutely, so. there's absolutely no way that issues are ever going to be truly resolved. But you know something? If we don't make the effort with shows like this or um, promoting freedom in a positive way, then you'll never, ever see a solution. So... Like you say, we're not out necessarily to change people's minds. This is more of an exercise for ourselves to help understand our own uh, relationship with freedom and the freedom culture. But um, if we do change minds out there, like you said, all the better. Awesome, Robert. Good point, too, because I've learned more doing this show over the years Mm -hmm. myself than anything. You know, I guess teaching is part of learning and the part, you know, two parts of the same coin. So in any case, let us begin. (laughs) 
savior of our Lord, Judea for nearly a century had lain under the mastery of Rome. In the seventh year of the reign of Augustus Caesar, an imperial decree ordered every Judean each to return to his place of birth to be counted and taxed. The converging ways of many of them led to the gates of their capital city, Jerusalem, the troubled heart of their land. The old city was dominated by the fortress of Antonia, the seat of Roman power, and by the great golden temple, the outward sign of an inward and imperishable faith. Even while they obeyed the will of Caesar, the people clung proudly to their ancient heritage, always remembering the promise of their prophets that one day there would be born among them a redeemer to bring them salvation and perfect freedom. You've gone too far. You are just one minute away from a jail cell, Mr. Shaw. Uh, Your Honor, my point, we're not getting services at home. The people in New Orleans didn't after Katrina. My client didn't hear. And by the way, I don't think I'm that much of a complainer, given all there is to complain about. Education, Social Security, inflation, unemployment, health care, homeland security, the war, the fact that Osama and Brittany keep pumping out new videos, there's global warming, nothing, nothing is going right, Judge. And you simply cannot put a positive spin on it, no matter how many times you say General Petraeus. No, your case against the National Guard is dismissed. The bailiff will take Mr. Shore and Mr. Crane into custody and lock them up for contempt of court and country. I didn't like it when he said that all I do is bitch. Well, you do complain a lot. But this wasn't trivial, Benny. I mean, think of it. This country is utterly ill-equipped to deal with national emergencies because we're too busy imposing democracies elsewhere. In Katrina, a lot of experts could see it coming with those levies. We didn't do anything, and when they broke, we couldn't respond. Just like we lack the manpower to respond to the flood here. Isn't there something wrong with that? The roof's leaking at home, and we're re-shingling abroad. Why is nobody coming for us? Where are our significant others? Denny, we're our significant others. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, Robert, William Shatner and James Spader were just great together in Boston Legal. And when it comes to being just right, I guess, Robert, you and I are our significant others, would you say? <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah. when it comes to being just right, okay, let's leave it at that. <laughs> I mean, all we do is, is, is bitch, 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 right? <laughs> oh, we do. We do indeed. But at least we smile when we do that. Uh, so where's all this leading to? Well, a lot of us here in Canada are aware of a guy named Lou Skeezus. He's got a radio show originating in Toronto that's called Happy Capitalism, a term that in itself rubs against the grain of all the anti-capitalist rhetoric we're exposed to. The very greeting itself, Happy Capitalism, suggests the sunny side of capitalism. I don't know if the term happy freedom quite comes across the same way, but one writer at the National Post seems to be suggesting that we should all start thinking in more positive terms about freedom rather than coming out across as bitch, bitch, bitch and always playing on the negative. And that's Marnie Supkoff, who in the National Post on October 26th of this year, under the heading The Sunny Side of Liberty, wrote this. This is the part I'm focusing on. She writes, Hang on to the idea of a sunnier outlook because it's something from which the non-partisan freedom movement 
could stand to gain. For example, the case for free trade can be ma made by focusing on new economic opportunities for small business and entrepreneurs that are created when trade barriers are removed. Liberty has enough positive reasons to recommend it as a solution to many of those problems that wallowing in gloom needn't be part of the campaign. Another example, I have never seen people who oppose the use of e-cigarettes or vaping in private clubs and restaurants be won over by arguments that they are interfering with the independent choice of consenting adults, though that's a perfectly valid point. I have, however, seen vaping opponents be won over when they learn that the practice of vaping can have a hugely positive effect on cigarette smokers, some of whom are suddenly able to quit a destructive, unhealthy, and stubborn addiction in days after trying unsuccessfully for years. Now, as I say, my goal is to remain realistic about the challenges that encroachment of rights create, but I also believe that his is po this is possibly or completely compatible with maintaining a focus on making lives better and empowering individuals to take the stands and do the work that matters for them. And then she concludes, so let us imagine selling freedom by highlighting what it has to offer rather than appealing to fear of the dystopia that will result without it. It also means not letting freedom's opponents drag us down into a negative fight if we can help it. It pays to stay focused on the world we actually want to live in rather than the worldview others might ascribe to us based on their misunderstandings about who we are or what we believe, end quote. And that was from the National Post, Marnie Supkoff. Any initial reactions to hearing that? Well, no. I mean, I'm in general agreement, though... Sometimes it's not always a positive argument that's going to sway the day. It has to be truth. It has to be facts. It has to be sometimes a brutal reality. And sometimes you have to be uh, attack the negatives rather than just be positive. You know, Robert, I agree. Uh, you, you hit it right on the head. I think you just said everything I'm going to say in the next 15 minutes in, that, in those two sentences. <laughs> because on one <laughs> level, I completely sympathize with the spirit of what Marnie Supkoff is getting at. She's basically telling advocates of freedom not to always be scaremongers and doomsayers so much as you know to be positive and and stress the positive benefits of living in a free society you know quit your bitch bitch bitching i guess she's saying to a lot of people now i don't have a problem with that as far as it goes the problem is that this approach doesn't go very far at all if the objective is to sell freedom quote unquote you know the devil's always in the details and perhaps also in the expectations of what might work to better persuade others of your views in fact Supkoff's example regarding vaping seems to have missed a fundamental complexity about her positive approach. In saying that opponents to vaping have been, quote, won over to freedom when convinced of the positive effects of vaping on its users, I think she's completely wrong. I don't think that's what happened at all. They have not been won over to any freedom causes. They've merely had their specific grounds of opposition to vaping countered so as to silence that particular argument. Not their opposition to vaping or to their or give them a support of freedom. They'll just come up with yet another reason to curtail vaping if they're opposed to it. You know, zoning, regulations, anything. They'll come up with something. You know, costs, regulations, whatever. So don't be kidding yourselves about this. Freedom itself is the thing that has to be sold as a positive, and not, not every possible action that a free person might engage in. Supkoff says, quote, I've never seen people who oppose the use of e-cigarettes or vaping in private clubs and restaurants be won over by arguments 
that they're interfering with the independent choice of consenting adults. End quote. Well, I believe her. <laughs> I have never seen anybody get convinced by an argument like that either. But they're not looking for any arguments to be won over. Political opponents of vaping should be judged, not convinced of anything. It should be judging them. G good luck with convincing anybody of anything. The real benefit, I think, of doing that is not to win the opponent over, but also to attract others who see the judgment, who might agree with you, who might suddenly you know, come out of the closet and finally say what they're really thinking. For example, opponents of vaping, if their opposition extends into a support of legally prohibiting it, should be morally challenged. They're advocating the use of a gun, the use of force, simply to prevent others from engaging in an action that doesn't affect them in any way. And they're being a you know, a bunch of a-holes, if you ask me, <laughs> and should be told so with a big smile, <laughs> to, to be sure, you know. And in a diplomatic and polite way, I'm not suggesting anything literal here, uh, but tell them that what they're advocating is morally and ethically wrong. Not the, the, the issue about vaping, who cares? Shame on them. You know, they, they're willing to have complete strangers who, to them be fined, restricted, or jailed, all, and all because of what? They disagree with something or they think it's wrong? And here's the point. Even if vaping was no different, or even more harmful than smoking whatever you're smoking, there's still no reason to fine or jail them or, or stop them from doing things. Why in a free society should anyone ever have to go out of their way to acquire knowledge about vaping and make an argument in favor of vaping as being grounds for freedom? So, you, know, you see the, the, the logic of that, Robert? Well, I do. You're, they're talking about a particular action and trying to say that if you allow this action, you're uh, promoting freedom or you're turning people on to freedom, when I think that that's not the case. You're appealing to a personal, um, a personal choice. Some people will agree with it, some people won't. They're not going to be thinking about the deeper level of what a freedom is and why we need it. That's a more philosophic discussion. That's a heavy discussion, and it transcends vaping. It transcends any other single issue, like uh, wearing seat belts or being able to smoke pot or anything like that. Those are singular issues. The underlying roots of all of the issues is what we want to talk about. Excellent. You know, and, and keep in mind, too, the context of my argument. I am not saying that Marnie Supkoff's argument in favor of vaping is quote-unquote wrong. It's an argument that certainly has to be made if the objective is to counter ignorance about vaping or whatever. But if the objective is to sell freedom, I beg to differ with this approach as a specific means of achieving that end. You know, it, it, it's part of it, but it won't do the trick, trust me. See, I'm asking you to trust me. And this raises <laughs> another term I saw Supkoff uh, use in her article. The nonpartisan freedom movement. I want to know where exactly is this movement? <laughs> I thought Robert and I were the only significant others who are part of the movement. <laughs> and why specify the nonpartisan freedom movement? Is there a partisan free freedom movement that I don't know about? <laughs> as well, president there is in Ontario. Well, yeah, you know, as president of the Freedom Party of Ontario, I know of no other political parties with that name or with that objective. So I, I'm at a loss on this. Of course, uh, the current direction of movement, as far as movements go, both in the partisan and nonpartisan sense, in Canada, in the United States, and certainly in Europe, is decidedly pointed in a direction that is the exact opposite of freedom. Sad to say, but fear is a much more powerful motive than reward. 
which accounts for the state of much of the world today. I'm certain there are many individuals who would like to see freedom in their society, but relative to the majority, there are very few of us dedicated to the freedom movement, if there is such a thing, either in the nonpartisan or partisan sense. So good luck with that. And so, you know, if you're looking for a freedom movement that's not partisan, well, you're listening to it. Looking for a freedom movement that is partisan? The only one I know about is the Freedom Party of Ontario and the rest of Canada and America and the world. Well, you guys are out of luck, but I'm still smiling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's a, a, just my take on that, Robert. Now, yeah, well said, Bob. Now, one fellow I certainly have reason to believe who has a handle on individual freedom is U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, but he is by no means affiliated with a pro-freedom movement by running for the Republicans, but he sure is getting something done. And however, given his choices, he is at least in an arena that still entertains a discussion of ideas, like any ideas. We've always said that, haven't we, Robert? The, the, mm -hmm. the, the debate's on the right. It always the, is on the right. Yeah, the left... The left the left world does not debate and is not interested in knowing facts or discovering real solutions. And to see the left best re represented is to look at the mainstream media. And that, among other considerations, is what we'll be doing when we return. A crown of untold riches. Majesty, are you not the true and worthy successor to the throne of Moravia? And has not Allah delivered this into my hands from the wondrous waters of the fountain of destiny itself to rest upon your head? I can't understand. Sinbad, why did you do it? Give away a whole kingdom? Priceless treasure? Why? I value freedom. A king is never truly free. Why, he's even told who he must marry. Uh, Senator Cruz. Congressional Republicans, Democrats, and the White House are about to strike a compromise that would raise the debt limit, prevent a government shutdown, and calm financial markets that fear of another Washington-created crisis is on the way. Does your opposition to it show that you're not the kind of problem solver American voters want? You know, let me say something at the outset. The questions that have been asked so far in this debate illustrate why the American people don't trust the media. This is not a cage match. And you look at the questions, Donald Trump, are you a comic book villain? Ben Carson, can you do math? John Kasich, will you insult two people over here? Marco Rubio, why don't you resign? Jeb Bush, why have your numbers fallen? How about talking about the substantive issues people care about? I'm not finished yet. The contrast with the Democratic debate, where every fawning question from the media was, which of you is more handsome and wise? <laughs> so this is and the let question me be about clear. the debt limit, which you, you have 30 seconds left to answer, should you choose to do so. <coughs> let me be clear. The men and women on this stage have more ideas, more experience, more common sense, 
than every participant in the Democratic debate. That debate reflected a debate between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. <laughs> and nobody watching at home believes that any of the moderators has any intention of voting in a Republican primary. The questions that are being asked shouldn't be trying to get people to tear into each other. It should be, what are your substantive okay. solutions okay. to people? I, 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 I just want the record to reflect. Guys, I asked you about the dead limit and on. I got no answer. I, okay. Now, Bob, on the past two shows, we've talked about the West's freedom culture and how the left are eroding and corrupting that freedom. Today, I'd like to talk about one aspect of our culture of freedom we sometimes take for granted, but I think it's integral and essential to keeping freedom alive. Trust. Once you lose trust in your neighbor, your business associates, the media, the government, the value of the currency, then your culture is doomed. I, I, I never see trust separate from freedom. <laughs> oh, no, they, they go hand in glove. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Hundreds of years ago, society as such was thought of as being estates. You know, it's divided into estates, the clergy being the first estate, the nobility the second, and the commons, or the people, us, the third. The media, who have um, privilege written right into the American Constitution, are often considered the fourth estate simply for the power of persuasion they command. A culture where the commons lacks trust in the other three estates will fall like a house of cards, in my opinion. The clergy is dissolving as an estate by the sheer weight of their irrational doctrine. The nobility, which today would be um, our elected leaders and politicians, are trusted less than used car salesmen, and quite rightly so, and are openly lampooned. And as for the media, well, Bob, you heard that clip from Senator Ted Cruz. What, what did you think about that when you heard it the first time? I was actually elated. I hate, to, I hate to put it that way. But in a way, Ted Cruz reminded me of the way I would have answered questions during all candidates' debates back 20 years ago when I used to run for various public offices. You mm -hmm. know, I never got elected, but you managed to get elected twice, Robert. Mm -hmm. And and today, you know how much the local media in my community loves me now, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm a person non grata in the leftist uh, you know, communist London Free Press, you know, in London, Ontario, and a growing list of other media as well, I'm sure. And, you know, I heard, I heard that question, or I, I didn't, I, I, only, I only heard the audio, I couldn't see what was going on, but that fellow, he said, I asked a question about the debt limit and got no answer, he says to, uh, uh, to Cruz at the end. I'm thinking, what a creep. What a slimeball yes. question that serves no public interest. The questioner did not ask about raising the debt limit. He mentioned those words, but didn't ask a question about it. And he got an answer to the question he did ask. Are yeah. you the kind of problem solver that Americans don't want? Cruz gave the proper answer. No, you're the kind of media Americans don't want. <laughs> I thought it was great. He was and, excellent. Yeah. You know, and the questioner already knew Cruz's opinion on raising the debt limit. It was packaged in his question, your opposition to raising it, as if raising it is a way to solve a problem. You know, well, not only that, he prefaced the question by it, saying, um, the motion on, on the floor, of course, has all of these positive effects. You know, it's going to cap, it's going to raise the debt ceiling so that it'll allay any fears in the markets and, you know, and have positive effects. So with that preface... He then asks Cruz, how can you possibly be opposed to it? You're not the problem solver we need. Yes. Again, he's doing the politicking. Yes. Right. He's, yeah, making no, the, he, he's stating a case when that's not his, even his job or his responsibility. And he, here's my question. How can I trust that guy? 
<laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I'm going to be talking about for the next little while. You know, Cruz dared to say what every other GOP candidate should have said to the media celebrities who here, kept here. asking questions designed to embarrass and denigrate the candidates. When did you stop beating your wife? Type of question automatically puts the answerer on the defensive. And that's exactly what they were doing with every question. That's not how a debate is supposed to be fairly moderated. This is a pivotal point in the presidential debate, not only for Cruz, who had the courage and good sense not to fall into the left-wing media's trap, but for such a high-profile politician as that senator to acknowledge that the public do not trust the media. As if it were a matter of fact, which it is. The public do not trust the media. And he got to say it on CNBC with tens of millions of people listening. And if you heard the applause to that, you know, it was tumultuous. People agreed. They don't trust the media. And um, as Cruz pointed out, none of the moderators has any intention of voting in a Republican primary. Um, he exposed their bias. He underpinned the reason why the pe people don't trust the media. Because they have agenda. The media, that is. They have an agenda which is contrary to fair reporting, or, in the case of moderating a political debate, contrary to asking unloaded questions. None of the media will come out and directly say, I am a Democrat, because that would be a direct and overt statement of a bias, which they are very careful not to say. Instead, they do everything but come out and say those four words. They impugn the Republican candidates and, as Cruz said, fawn over the Democratic candidates. It's so blatantly obvious. It's comical. They're the cartoon car caricatures of the election in down in it, the state. It's hypocrisy. Oh, totally. And everybody sees it. The emperor yeah. wears no clothes when it comes to the media. But, but you so know... Blatant. There is a certain trust inherent in the institution of the Fifth Estate. You know what I'm saying? There, like, like there, there's something about, like even here in, in, in the city of London, we just had someone who was a news announcer elected in the federal election because people trust anybody who tells the news. Almost uh, yes, like it's built in in a way. Several times media personalities get, a, get elected for that very reason. They have a trustworthy face. People trust them because they brought the news to their homes, you know. Um, but doesn't but that, isn't that a bit of a contradiction then? It's like, or are people too, feel two ways about it? It's a critical trust I think they don't have. Well, I think it's desperation. Who else are they going to trust? You know, somebody they don't know, somebody they haven't seen in their living rooms telling them the news, you know, how, a complete unknown. You know, you're right, you're right, you know, because you, how often do you hear it said that name recognition gets people elected when that's the only thing the person has because it's the only thing they know? Well, what did and I say it, last, we, uh, last yeah, week? Yeah. Justin Trudeau, the only reason he got elected was because of his father. That's it, really. Well, yeah. and there were other things, too. Like, for example, we've never really given anybody four terms straight, you know, but other than that, Understood, Justin Trudeau yeah. got elected because he's a Trudeau. You know, exactly. there's a complete lack, to, lack of trust in somebody who's not clear about their motives. And, and these guys weren't, these celebrities, these media celebrities, they're, they're not clear about their motives. This, of course, be goes beyond journalism, you know, and, and I love picking on journalists, but that's not at all extends to it. It extends to everybody. Trust but verify was a favorite phrase, by the way, of Russian origin, used by Ronald Reagan. Its meaning is clear. Trust is not absolute. It has to be measured against reality. The word verify means true. With true, of course, meaning not false, not a lie, or demonstrable in reality. See, that's why I was surprised when you trusted me so quickly off the top of the show there. 
<laughs> well, I've only known I you for you were three gonna, years. I thought you were going to give me some conditions. <laughs> yeah, I guess we know each other too well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines trust as assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. It means a person has confidence in somebody or something. It does not mean that once you give somebody your trust, they will not violate it. It doesn't mean that uh, one can always be 100% sure of the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone. Only that one is confident that the person's words conform to reality. You know, from the cradle we give our trust freely to people like our parents and family, friends, adults in authority. We give it freely unless a person violates that trust. And, and it can only take one breach. And we quickly learn not to trust someone who has lied to us or acted against our expectations regarding his character. One breach sometimes. Mm-hmm. If we consider the number of people we trust daily to deal fairly and honestly with, it becomes quite apparent that trust is the glue that binds us together to form a culture. Well, at least one of the glues. There are others that can get onto it in another show. What kind of culture do you think we would have if we could not trust, for example, a police officer or a judge or a witness in court, a journalist, a businessman, a priest, a teacher, or a scientist? We'd have a world where everybody's first reaction upon meeting someone new would be suspicion. We'd be constantly living in fear of giving trust lest it be betrayed. We would never trust but verify. We could only verify every time. No trust. Now, to continue to use the media as our example, before the uh, ability to verify things almost instantaneously with the Internet, we would trust a journalist to tell us the truth about the news and trust him to set aside any bias he might have when reporting on such cases. But now we have, of course, the Internet. And uh, we can do that ourselves in many respects. To verify a newspaper report prior to the Internet, we would read more than one newspaper or watch more than one news program to gain confidence in the reporter. If Peter Mansbridge said something on CTV, um, he was on CTV, right, Peter Mansbridge? I forget. CTV (laughs) or CBC? I don't even know. I never watched them. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't seen it in years. Uh, You know, if he he said the same thing that was also said by, for example, Peter Jennings on ABC then we would be confident that what what was said was true, right? Today, however, the media have become so untrustworthy that people now rarely take what they say to be accurate without first seeing it for ourselves from many non-traditional sources. The drive-by media, as Rush Limbaugh likes to call the mainstream media, has to be verified as a matter of course before we believe anything they say. With the barrage of videos showing abuses by the police, Many find it difficult to trust any of them anymore, even though the sheer number of police officers doing their jobs correctly overwhelms those few who shoot without provocation, for example. It's the actions of the bad cops which stick with us, and our trust is eroded in all cops, unfortunately. Priests, as another example, in the Catholic Church used to be some of the most trusted members of society until the stories of sexual abuse came to light, and now... The priesthood is seen as a haven for pedophiles by many. And again, even though the numbers who are are not pedophiles far overwhelm those who are. Again, a pity. Most recently, scientists have been seen to be untrustworthy as scandals surrounding climate change emerge. And even um, for such vaunted people, the allure of billions in government funding to prove man is responsible for climate change, uh, obviously, is just too appealing to ignore for some. The false linking of autism 
with vaccinations is another breach to erode our trust in scientists. So not even scientists are immune from this breach of trust. The corruption of scientists, to me particularly upsetting, is they're the very people whom we rely upon to discover the truth, the same truth we use to verify our trust. You know, it should go without saying that the government, regardless of what level, cannot be trusted. But there's one thing I'd like to say about that. The government, that is the government of today in its present form, can be trusted. In the same sense, Bob, you talked about trusting, uh, what was it, an alligator to act like an alligator, yeah. right? I can trust it can be to trusted. raise taxes. <laughs> exactly. It can be trusted to, to act as an instrument of force. You can guarantee that it will act, in most cases, to restrict your freedom and limit your choices. Government, like any other agency or person, can be trusted to act according to its nature. The nature of government is force. Therefore, they can be trusted to use that force. I have confidence in this trust due to the countless examples over countless years where the behavior of government has been consistent. But I'm just playing with words here, of course. Uh, many of us do not trust government to do the one job it should be trusted to do, and that is to protect our individual rights. In this area, it fails as well as the media does, and it is untrustworthy in that respect. Now, perhaps the most disappointing breach of trust I have experienced is with teachers and the education system as a whole, the government education system. Now, while ostensibly a system to impart knowledge, it's become a body whose primary purpose is indoctrination. As with the media, it's often not explicit, but insidious. And I've dealt with their treachery at length on many previous shows, as you know, Bob. Suffice mm -hmm. it to say that the damage caused by teachers in the government education system is, ironically, the cause of ignorance on a massive scale. This ignorance changes governments. It affects the livelihood of all those who pass through the, uh, the doors of a public school. It impoverishes the spirit of every child who knows that the universe works by fixed rules, but is met with an education which teaches otherwise. An education which has devised its entire curriculum to inculcate moral and cultural relativism. There's a great lack of trust in the education system. As these students mature, and for the lucky few realize they have been duped, they, like me, will come to trust no one in authority. And if we always expect deception, will we always find it? Unfortunately, in most cases, yes. Major, welcome to our table. Commander. Tell me, Major, where did you train? The Intelligence Academy or the Imperial War College? The Academy. Oh, so you must know Commander Comsap. I know of him. I assume you studied military history with him? Yes. Tell me, Major. What do you think about his theories on the differences between the military and the Tao Shia? Which aspects are you referring to? <laughs> Come now, Major. Surely you attended his classes regularly. It was Consab's main theme. Do you have a point to make, Commander? If so, it has escaped me. Commander Consab believes that in order to function, military officers have to trust each other. The Tao Shia, on the other hand, trust no one. They expect deception, so they always find it. Your opinion of the Tal Shiar is quite clear, Commander. I hope so.
Spock, you're the expert. Can you detonate the warhead from this computer? I can try, Captain. Altitude 550 miles. Captain, I want that warhead detonated too. Unless I do it, at least 100 miles above ground, just barely in time, frighten them out of this arms race. Captain, monitor show all major powers on full missile alert. Retaliatory strike ordered on warhead. Altitude 450 miles. Spock, I can estimate some of this, Captain, but without more time. Captain, he can only guess. Will you please let me do my job? I don't know what your job is. You may set those controls so we can't detonate that warhead. Listen, you, get away from him! Roberta, be careful. Servo set to kill. seconds. I'll need time to set it. Please, he's telling the truth. 55 seconds to impact. Spock, if you can't handle it, I'm going to have to trust him. It is difficult to know which is best, Captain. Without facts, the decision cannot be made logically. You must rely on your human intuition. Trust on a personal level is always often based on intuition, but I don't like that word as Spock used it or what it implies. Intuition to me is not a means of cognition any more than emotions are. What we often mean when we say intuition is a more subtle and rapid cognitive weighing of evidence. Does the person appear reputable? Has he ever deceived you in the past? Is he respected by others, for example? There's lots of subtleties we sum up almost instantaneously to reach a decision of whether or not we should trust someone. Sure. And I think during that particular clip, they they uh, elected to trust Gary Seven <laughs> to stop that nuclear <laughs> well, weapon. <laughs> I, I always thought, you know, Spock is so cool. It is difficult to know what to do. You know, he's so helpful, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks <laughs> a lot, so Spock. so casual. <laughs> We're near the end of the world here. There's going to be a nuclear explosion. Yeah. Yes, it's difficult to know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, fortunately, in the Western world, we have a culture where most people trust each other on an individual basis in everyday dealings. Now, here I'm talking about that other estate that we left out, the commons, the people, the proletariat, us. You know, we trust the bank teller to correctly debit our account, and yet we often verify by looking at our statement. We trust that the people who set the gauges on the gas pumps did their jobs correctly, and we're getting the liter of gases, the gas we, we think we are, even though... Just the other week, I found a discrepancy which I brought to the attention of the gas station attendant. Yeah, you're, you're, starting to, you're starting to cause me to question all these practices, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe well, I'm being foolish. Well, come on, everybody checks the receipts now and then at least. I mean, I don't always well, now count and the change. Then, but certainly not always, you know. And sometimes no. I'm suspicious and I, yeah. but I don't bother looking. <laughs> no, I mean, do, do you count the change that's always handed back to you if we're talking, you know, like under a couple of bucks? And almost never. Almost never. I heft it in my hands. Yeah, that's about right to put it in my pocket, yeah, right? Yeah, that's about it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to complain too much. Maybe it's a Canadian thing. I don't know. But I'm not going to complain or seem to to want to be rude to to, to count my what? change, even though what? they you counted not, my money. You're <laughs> not going to bitch, bitch, bitch. <laughs> What's the matter no, with you? <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, if you know me, I do bitch, bitch, bitch a lot when it comes to when I'm finding injustice. Especially with my uh, with money. <laughs> well, that's the thing we that afflicts both of us, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, it takes an extremely corrupt, 
culture before we have to keep looking over our shoulders every minute of every day and count all of our change it's being when it's given to our look at every receipt and all that um, you know or, or to be suspicious about every an extremely corrupt culture luckily we don't live in such a culture yet but it's my opinion that we're on a downward slope to just such a culture of mistrust. You know, they exist everywhere in the world, these cultures of mistrust. I mean, just think of uh, uh, North Korea, just think of uh, Venezuela, uh, just think of any of those uh, socialist type of countries where well, corruption is a part of their culture. Russia, I mean, the Soviet yeah. Union before that, totally built on corruption. Uh, totally, today. yeah. As a matter of fact, it's expected. Of course. You know, but we don't do that here. We don't we don't slip 10, 20 bucks, you know, with our application to the ministry for our driver's license, you know, to make well, sure that it's done right. We don't do any of that stuff. If there was yet, ever a mistake, I, oh, sorry, <laughs> I say not yet, but I fear those kinds of practices are starting to encroach on us. I, I hear more and more. Oh, you think so? Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Underground few, economy, everything, you know, because people are just trying to protect themselves. Oh, well, there's always been an underground economy, which I call the economy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just a few years ago, trust in our Canadian currency, for example. Do you remember this, Bob, was shaken when a number of counterfeit $150 bills, uh, $100 bills and $50 bills, rather, came into circulation? A common sign on many store counters was, we do not accept 50 or $100 bills. The central bank, of course, was fairly quick to react to the loss of trust, by issuing new bills with enhanced security features so that now most places don't hesitate to accept them. You know, but just consider, you know, what that could have meant if it wasn't just the 50s and 100s. What if it was the 20s and the 10s and the 5s? You, oh, know? Yeah. you know, it was just would have been chaos. What of all forms yeah, can, of currency? Can, can you imagine that? S somebody who's <laughs> counterfeiting money and doing the same thing the government's doing by expanding the money supply. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Heaven forfend somebody else do exactly what the government does by right. inflating the currency, yeah. Or the money supply. You know, in a short period of time, the economy, I think, would collapse if that ever happened. But if it weren't for the ability to make electronic exchanges, you know, but just consider the level of trust. Here we go again. The trust we have in such electronic transactions. A large part of our holdings are nothing more than zeros and ones in somebody's computer ledgers. You know that. It's a frightening thought to think what would happen if trust was lost in the banking institutions as it has been lost in so many other institutions. You remember that uh, movie Fight Club? I don't know if you ever saw it, but what uh, the guy, the uh, central character did was blow up all of these buildings where all of the bank transaction records and credit card records were kept. And Never so saw that, that one. Never saw that yeah. one particularly, but I have seen a couple other stories very similar to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, in, in some respects, some tragic respects, nine eleven was well, not a story, but a real life event of that nature, mm -hmm. where a lot of records, financial records, were lost with with the lives of the people there who who uh, put the records together. So, um, yeah, I mean, our our society is built on a on a very tenuous balance of trust and verify. And I think uh, Verify is coming out in the lead here, uh, you know. Let's go back to the three estates of society. The clergy, the politicians, and the media are untrustworthy. You know, if that other estate, the commons, the proletariat, the people, us, falls into a state of mistrust, as I, as, as I said, you know, I mean, if I didn't trust you, if you didn't trust me, if we didn't trust uh, the person driving down on the other side of the road to stay on his side of the road, my God, we'd be living in constant fear. It wouldn't be a free world anymore. 
It would be a world of, you know, of, of anarchy, absolute anarchy. You know, if we fall into that state of mistrust, as severe as the other estates, um, like the media and the clergy and the government, we can just say goodbye to our culture of freedom. So trust me, a world without trust is a world you wouldn't want to live in. We may not be at that point where I could say trust no one, but I think Ronald Reagan was right to always just be a little suspicious and always let reality be the final arbiter of whom to trust and whom to just eye with suspicion. Don't you think, Bob? I think so. And I think that might be why there's a phrase, in God we trust, on really? American money. <laughs> <laughs> because who else can you trust if you can't trust the people around you? Well, that it, Robert? I think that's all for me, Bob, until next week at least. Yeah, well, I think at least people could understand it in Bob's you can trust. <laughs> oh, Join God. us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Trust us. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Hey. What's up? Uh, I'm Leonard. This is my I'm friend. I'm Skippy. Skippy Kavanaugh. <laughs> Great. You got the cash? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, hold on, hold on. How do we know that you're not going to take the money and drive away? What you doing, Skippy? <laughs> exactly what 1970s television crime dramas have taught us. You give us the helium first. Oh, how do I know you're not going to drive away without paying me? Guess I'm not the only one to watch 70s television crime dramas. <laughs> Look, you can trust us. We're respected scientists. Well, he is. Uh, I'm a wedding planner who can't find love himself. <laughs> it's ironic, but the point is, we can't trust you. You're a sketchy character in a parking garage. Yeah, well, from my perspective, that's how you two appear to me. Well, I never thought of it like that. Boy, frame of reference will just sneak up on you, won't it? Robert and I hope you enjoyed the show today. To hear more, you can visit our online archive at www.justrightmedia.org. And here's a taste of what you might find from show number 241, broadcast on March 15, 2012, when Robert and I had the honor of interviewing Lord Christopher Monckton and mathematician Christopher Essex. We discussed everything from global warming to mathematics and, yes, to games and puzzles. So you do have um, quite a background um, of puzzle making and you are known for the eternity puzzle and you're also known for sudoku x would That's you right. like to explain a couple of those let's start with sudoku x sure uh, i was away in cyprus when the craze for sudoku broke in the times and the daily mail in london i came back six months after the craze had begun and I thought, I want a piece of this. But of course, by then, every newspaper had got its own Sudoku puzzle, so I thought, I'm going to do something different. So I played around with it on the computer and decided that the smart thing to do would be not only to have the rows and columns and boxes containing all the digits from 1 to 9, but also to have the two diagonals containing all the digits from 1 to 9. And so here's a little puzzle for your listeners. Uh, what percentage of all the boxes that could have the digits from 1 to 9 arranged in a Sudoku way could also have the diagonals 
containing all the digits from one to nine. Uh, Christopher Essex can do this in his head, but the rest <laughs> of you, it may take a little longer. I can't even understand um, the question. <laughs> no, Bob, uh, all you have to played. do is you give a number. That's, that's okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, just guess. But anyway, th that was uh, an innovation. And I then managed to find that I could make puzzles from a 6x6 via a 9x9 to a 12x12, even a 16x16. 16 16. Oh, dear. And in the 16x16 16 16 puzzle, you had the 4x4 four four boxes, mm -hmm. you had 8x2 boxes, 2x8 boxes, you had the rows, the columns, and the diagonals. And the really tough versions of those, because I trained the computer to set them so that they were different grades, the really tough ones could take up to a month to solve by hand. Exactly. They were very, very tough. So I had great fun doing that and produced five books of Sudoku puzzles, the first of which sold 100,000 copies, so it was a bestseller. Mm -hmm. um, and I enjoyed doing that. It was a nice intellectual exercise. And then the, the biggest, uh, I suppose, puzzle I've ever been involved in. Before you get on to yes, that, yes. Lord Monkton, is, is a question I have, and that is that I do a Sudoku puzzle about every day. Mm. I've never, unfortunately, tried your Sudoku X, though I have Shame. seen it on the internet. <laughs> Obviously not done by you, though. I mean, mm. there's other people out there doing Sudoku X. Yeah. Um, they are now. They're all copying. Yes, they're yes. all copying you, but yes. it would seem to me... I don't me, even get royalties when they do. It's don't a, you? It's a cheers, really. It's yep. terrible. But um, it would seem to me, and I have never done it, that having that extra constraint would actually give you more clues to be able to solve the puzzle quicker. Exactly. Therefore, you could reduce the number of digits that are given to you when oh, you start. So you only start off with, what, 16? So you, yes, you can go right down even to a dozen and still solve the whole Is puzzle. Right? It makes it a very, very much more interesting puzzle, actually. Very good. Yes. Now, your eternity process. How, how, many, how many books did you publish? Of Five books. books. Yeah. yeah. Okay. With all diff we started out with very simple ones, and then they got bigger and bigger, and then we were doing these 16 by 16s. And uh, people liked these. They found them very, very challenging. And the Daily Mail runs a Sudoku X um, every day, the 6x6 six six one. Let's hope you get royalties which for is, that. Uh, I did to start <laughs> with, and they paid me very handsomely to, to, to set them. And then the puzzle editor wanted to make some money out of this himself so he said we're going to cut your pay in half and i said no you've agreed the fee and that's what we do and so i stopped doing them and he just carried on doing them himself um which was a little naughty and i am going to have lunch with the editor when i get back to the uk and say well you mm -hmm. now owe me about one hundred and fifty thousand pounds worth of royalties can i have a check please <laughs> <laughs> which he will say no. for lunch <laughs> <laughs> but um you have to accept that if you invent something that's interesting, people will copy it and take advantage, and life is like that. It's tough. You just have to go off and invent something else. Talking of which, let's turn to the eternity puzzle. Yes. And this was an idea I came up with because I had designed a little, uh, what they're called, they're called tessellation puzzles, a particular kind of mathematical jigsaw, and I'd given one to Margaret Thatcher when I um, left her service, just 12 pieces made out of silver based on triangles um, joined together. And about two years later, her private office got in touch and they said, you've got to help. The entire business of government has come to a standstill because Margaret has been trying to solve your puzzle and neither she nor Dennis can do it. And if we're ever going to get the government back on track, please, 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 will you send us the answers? So I, I sent them the answers, of which there were several hundred, in fact, solutions. And, uh, uh, so fortunately, the government got back on track.